You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 230, and I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm a, an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am joined online today by Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are things? Oh, I'm doing okay, Nathan. I was out late at a concert last night, so I'm pretty tired. I apologize in advance. That's all right. Uh, also coming at you uh, over the internet is, I think you're supposed to say interwebs, that's all right, Dr. David Grubbs, Assistant Professor <laughs> of English at Houston Baptist University. How are you doing, David? Oh, pretty decent. Got a goodly amount of Mountain Dew in me right now, so, you know, feeling perky. Sounds like a winner. Uh, guys, what's going on on the Christian Humanist Radio Network? Book of Nature had an episode about the Flat Earth society i was interested in that i didn't think you'd have to work so hard to uh, disprove the flat earth but they <laughs> they did a series of mathematical uh uh arguments that i couldn't really follow i haven't had a chance to listen yet did they mention Kyrie irving at any point <laughs> no but at the end of the episode todd talks about this guy he used to fight with on the internet and dan knew who it was his name is Archimedes Plutonium or something, some ridiculous name like that. I don't think that's real. That well, doesn't yeah. sound like a real person to me. Yeah, well, I think maybe he changed his name. <laughs> yeah, that one's definitely in my queue. Um, well, you you guys apparently just went and recorded without me. Um, so, but nonetheless, you know, kudos to y'all. You managed to um, intrigue and please... Uh, the listeners from the feedback I've gotten so far. Yes, we went ahead and recorded without you when you told us you couldn't record with us. I know, I know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, just. It's not like we came in an hour and a half early and recorded without you. Yes, no, <laughs> hey, no, where that's is true. everybody? <laughs> that's true. J J J K. Um, yeah, dear listeners, the reason why I wasn't there for the pacifism episode and uh, was we were doing sonograms for our. Um, baby coming in May. So, and this is number twelve. <laughs> Four, <laughs> but I could see, I could see how you could be confused. You're into the L's. Uh, no, we're only up to D. <laughs> also on the network, uh, we have a new episode of the Sectarian Review on American Psycho uh, and Christian Feminist. Uh, no, we already announced that one. I forgot the episode title at that point because I haven't watched the series and I still can't remember. So. I'm sure it's very good. I just haven't listened yet because I haven't watched the series. So uh, that sounds about like what's going on in the network. What's going on in the Christian Humanist podcast today is we're going to go biblical and we're going to talk about St. Paul's Woo-hoo! letter to the Galatians. So, And what he really said. I'm not sure what that means, David, but I'm sure you'll expand as we go along. Uh, Michael, I mean... Uh, I don't want to do a whole lot of historical background. Let's start with, you know, what the letter actually does. One of his strategies for establishing his his authority in Galatians is to insist over and over on his standing as an apostle. So in this text in particular, what does that word apostle mean and to what extent does it overlap with and depart from the ways that other books of the New Testament use that word apostle? Yeah, uh, apostle means one who is sent out. So um, most basically it refers to the 11 disciples of Christ who were sent out at the Great Commission, uh, which presents Paul with a problem, right? Because Paul was not one of those disciples. And in fact, he was not even Paul at that point. He was still Saul and he was preparing to persecute the church. Um, So he does claim authority 
as an apostle, but he tempers that in at least two ways, and maybe you guys can think of more. First of all, he says in uh, in verse one eight uh, that even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And I think that's important because ultimately the authority he's claiming does not belong to him as Paul. It belongs to the gospel. And so it seems to be that he's a he's an apostle by virtue of preaching the gospel. And number two, he admits uh, that he was not originally an apostle, that in fact um, he worked outside the structure of apostleship early in his in his ministry he uh and that he did not learn the gospel from the living christ but from the risen christ if that makes sense so he he uh it's kind of audacious we we i think are probably inclined not to see it as audacious as it probably is that he's that he is claiming authority equal to that of peter and james whom he criticizes later in the letter, but uh, it's very important for the argument he's making because he's making an argument about what gospel is true. And so he needs to receive his authority by preaching the true gospel, but at the same time, the true gospel gets its authority from him claiming to be an apostle. I'm not accusing him of any kind of underhanded dealings, but it is a, a complicated vision of authority here in Galatians. Right. And just one thing that I'd add to that, Michael, I think that you give a good account of what's going on in uh, both the synoptics and in Galatians there. In some other places in Paul's letters, uh, he lists the apostles uh, as a sort of office within the church, if you will, or as a gift of the Spirit, uh, so that you almost get the sense that you know there are missionaries of a sort that take on the Greek noun apostle, uh, so that, you know, one could become an apostle without having been one of the 11. And of course he counts himself as one of those sorts. Uh, so, I mean, David, anything else on the term apostle before we move on? I, I like to, uh, I like to think of it as something like the commissioned, um, or the heralds of Christ. Uh, that, that chapter in, uh, in, in acts when, uh, Paul and Barnabas are are in a a Greek city, and uh, he, uh, Paul heals a man, and they are immediately mistaken for Zeus and Hermes. And of course, Paul is identified as Hermes because he is the one doing the talking. Um, and and to think of to think of the apostles of the Christ as kind of the Hermes, the, the the Hermes, the Mercury, the 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 divine herald who goes forth accompanied by, uh, accompanied by wonders, um, from the heavenly king, um, I I think is a another kind of cultural, uh, possibly another an, another cultural, um, reference. I don't know. Uh, I I just think that's neat to think that Paul's Hermes. <laughs> it it is a fun episode. I... <laughs> I, I do. I do want to add that that in a real sense he is an apostle. He he is commissioned because because mm-hmm. Christ when he appears to him says you know go you know uh, yes. you've been persecuted me now go preach. Mm-hmm. But he's not commissioned publicly the way the other the other apostles are. And so you can imagine True. Peter or James saying, "Who does this guy think he is?" Especially given his history as a persecutor of the church. Right, and it's a story that he tells multiple times in the Book of Acts. Uh, of that of that commissioning well david uh i think our listeners might anticipate that you and i read certain passages of this book differently so i want to a couple times this episode uh serve them up to you so that we can articulate strong positions and put our listeners in a position to think faithfully about them so here's the first one i'm going to let you have the first swing at it the way that i tend to read galatians 2 and without a doubt i'm influenced by nt wright and other kinds of scholars Paul's famous statement that we're justified or made right through the faith of Jesus Christ, whatever we want to do with that squirrely genitive noun, comes as a response to the confrontation with Peter that he's just narrated, so that the question of being made right involves what kinds of people are really God's people when God's people assemble. So, since you're the guy that tends to interview Kevin Van Hooser, and I'm the guy who tends to interview N.T. Wright, to what extent can you commend the reading that I just summarized, and at what points would you contend against it? 
Well, this is one of the reasons why I am so deeply disappointed in you, Nathan, that earlier I make a Saint, what St. Saint Paul really said joke. Oh, and, that's and, what and it was. Okay, it. I gotcha. Oh, heavens. Yeah, I am slow today, and Michael was the one out late last night. Yeah. I, I yeah. What St. Paul really said, uh, famous. I still don't get it if it makes you feel any better. It's a famous N.T. Wright book. <laughs> I, I don't care for reading. That's basically on this topic. Yes. We, we understand. We understand. Uh, oh, gosh. The, I mean, the way that you frame it, um, justified, made right, um, you know, my, my my inner Martin Luther wants to wants to quibble with the distinction between made and declared, but you know, I'll 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 roll with that at the moment. Um you talk about that squirrely genitive, I guess that's probably a thing that we'll have to unpack. Um certainly it is triggered by the confrontation with Peter and uh Peter's uh behavior that seems to imply uh a a distinction um, where, according to Paul's gospel, there is one no longer. Um, Peter, is, the, the, the story that Paul tells in Galatians 2 is of Peter um, when, when being observed by um, visitors from the, the, the church at Jerusalem will no longer eat with Gentiles as he had previously. Uh, now, we, we, have, we can't pop the hood on Peter's motives or necessarily know what he's thinking. And I've heard different takes on what exactly um, Peter's doing, whether this is just rank hypocrisy or whether he's doing what Paul actually uh, uh, promotes in 1 Corinthians, which is when I'm a, with Jews, I act like a Jew, and when I'm with Gentiles, I act like a Gentile so that I don't give offense to anyone. Um, but in this moment, Paul sees it as undercutting the uh, what he sees as, as the grounds for right standing with the people of God. Um, what, what is your right standing before God? Are you one of his people? Um, does it depend on these, these markers of law, in this case food laws, um, that he would be observing um, by hanging out with uh, the Jewish believers? Um, certainly I think that occasions, I mean, obviously that occasion is starting the conversation, um, whether it extends to other works of the law, um, beyond those, um, which are markers that separate Jew from Gentile, um, is one of the places, that's one of the conversations that we would be having, um, potentially between a, a, a rightish person and a Husarian um, oh, I don't necessarily have as much a tr uh, as much a problem with occasionally translating um, that that squirrely genitive as faith of Jesus Christ. Um, the I don't speak Greek, but as I understand it, the, the issue there is whether or not um, uh, pistis Christu means faith in Christ or f or Christ's faith. Right. Yeah, that's a good, um, that's that's a good summary of the dispute. Right. Um it would be, you know, and and to kind of illustrate the the parallel, um if I said it, it would be the difference between saying um I had knowledge of the king and I had the king's knowledge. Um one saying that I had the sort of knowledge that the king has and the other one saying I have I have a knowledge of which the king is the object. Right. Um, so, uh, from my particular, pers uh, from my perspective, uh, Hebrews tells me that Christ was faithful in all his house. So, I have no problem with affirming the faithfulness of Christ. Um, I have no problem affirming that the faithfulness of Christ is the basis of my justification. Um, but, uh, Sinking, sinking a lot of the conver, uh, a, a lot of the conclusions of which of how you read Galatians into that, um, and again, not a biblical, not a New Testament studies guy, but um, there are other ways that even in Galatians that idea is communicated sometimes with a specific preposition. Um, in Galatians two sixteen, it does, and three twenty six, both that talks about. Um, 
faith in Christ and includes the preposition. Um, uh, the, the question of whether or not we talk about um, whether, whether it means faith as in belief or faith as in faithfulness, I think that's usually the way it's treated if it's um, taken faith of Christ. So, Generally speaking, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Well, in, in that particular case, you've got verses um, in 2.16 and in 3.26, both of which include the phrase with the, with the squirrely genitive and the phrase faith in Christ with the preposition. And so then the question um, that I would ask to, the, to, to one maintaining that position, why would you render the form of pistis in that in that same verse, in this one phrase as faith, and in this other phrase as faithfulness. Um, maybe Paul's making a pun. That would be cool. Um, but I would be interested to hear why you would take it differently, even even in the very same verse. Um, and even in, even with all of the pistis Christus, tra- even if you you know just sort of did a word search and changed all of those faith in Christ to faith of Christ or faithfulness of Christ versus um, wherever Pistus Christu is, you still have the affirmation Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.22, Galatians 3.26, um, stretching beyond that, Romans 3.22, um, the affirmation that justification comes to the believer. So, you know, it... it it, it seems as if um, faith coming through justification or uh, justification coming through faith or justification coming to those who, who have faith in terms of belief um, is still a Galatians concept, a Pauline concept. Um, whether or not that phrase, Pistis Christu, um, is also a reference to Christ's faithfulness um, as God's son and servant um, to be the one who represents us in covenant. I mean, I'm already open to that idea for other reasons. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not fighting you as much on this as, as you might want me to. <laughs> oh, and that's fine. I mean, you know, like I said, I wanted to open up the possibility of that so that you know, yeah. this letter, which tends to generate controversy, you know, whether from the mm-hmm. homebrewed Christianity realms or from the Christ the Center realms, uh, you know, mm-hmm. at the very least, people could say that we had different says upon it. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, that right. that notion of faith versus faithfulness, I, I tend to read that noun as encompassing both uh, so that, mm-hmm. you know, the salvation, uh, again, doesn't come from any kind of uh, birth in a natural sense, from any ethnicity, uh, certainly not mm-hmm. from, you know, the observation of circumcision and kosher, but from loyalty mm-hmm. to Christ, right? And I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. the reason that I, I tend to read it that way is because it makes it, uh, it makes more sense of the latter chapters of Romans and then the last chapter of Galatians, where, you know, if you regard this as, you know, a complete disavowal of any kind of active loyalty to Christ, it makes it harder to make sense of those last chapters. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's my own sort of literary rhetorical reason for preferring that reading. But, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I also, you know, despite some of the harsh things that I've written about Martin Luther in my dissertation, uh, I do think that on <laughs> that note, the idea that the initiative is divine initiative and that it is the mm-hmm. work of Christ that actually affects salvation I can affirm that all day mm-hmm. long. I do affirm it all day long. When I preach, that's what I affirm, right? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I want to I want to ask. Um I there there are definitely passages where I don't mind glossing faith as loyal or pistis as loyal. Mm-hmm. Um I mean that in 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 some passages I think that makes that hits kind of a nice balance between what we believe and what we do in that in that concept of allegiance. Um, but then you, you have, um, passages like in, uh, Galatians three, where it talks about Abraham believing promises. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and then in other, 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 other Pauline writings as well, that it's, that it, that, that, that's the way it's framed. You believed 
what you the word that you heard you believed what you heard um and it's that same it's that same word group so um it, it feels a little weird to me that you would say, and then, you know, God made a promise to Abraham and he was loyal to it. That seems a little weird in that passage. Oh, see, that makes uh, but, perfectly good sense to me. But, and maybe I'm importing too much of Hebrews 11 into this. But the, the okay. form, the content of Abraham's faith is precisely that he goes to the land. Okay. So, okay. I mean, that is the, it, it's not even that he has this abstract thing called faith. And then he exhibits it by going to the land. But the going to the land is the act that we call faithfulness. Whereas I would say he believes that a thing is so, and then he belie- then he behaves as if it is so. And I would call the, the believing that a thing is so at the beginning faith. But you're designating that whole process as faith. Yeah, it's a name for the... What would you call the second part, David? Obedience. I mean, it's like the old hymn, Trust and Obey. That's fair enough, yeah. And, and you know, my tendency when I read, <laughs> David, I, is not to separate the psychological from the ethical that neatly. Okay. And again, I don't think that's a matter of, you know, your reading being wrong and mine being right. I think it's a matter of differing emphasis. And, I mean, I think that will come out in the way that people preach this passage differently. Uh, but mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, I don't think I have to tweet, you know, farewell, David Grubzell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I won't, and I won't tweet back at you. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Uh, Michael, um, since David's being so nice, enough, do you want to jump in here? <laughs> yeah. No, I do not. <laughs> well, well, I could kind of follow the discussion you just had, but you guys both know more theology than I do. All right, David, what I, were you going to say? Cause I cut you off there. What I was going to say is if, if you go to YouTube and look up Kevin Van Hooser, um, and then write with with a W. You'll find um, a talk that he gave at I believe it was ETS um, in 2010, um, in which he actually talks about NT Wright. Um, and NT Wright was there, and then responds to them. And so, if you find the right video, you you can watch the one, and then it will cue back to NT Wright responding. So 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 that's interesting. Um, but another th- interesting thing that I've observed is in reading some of Van Hooser's more recent books, the ways that he started to integrate, it looks to me, integrate some of Wright's language and some of Wright's manner of speaking. Oh, interesting. So as, so as to um, integrate what he sees as, 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 as useful insights without abandoning... Um, Without, without necessarily, you know, stepping away from um, notions like imputed righteousness, uh, justification by imputation and things like that. Um, but at the same time, wanting to sort of move in the direction of, of recognizing um, uh, the correctness of some of Wright's moves. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I've, I found that interesting. Well, cool. And I wouldn't have, and I wouldn't have noticed it if you didn't talk rightish to me periodically. <laughs> On that note, uh, Michael, I know how much uh, you love allegory, so I'm going to ask you about that. Uh, Paul uses Genesis in some curious but really pervasive ways in this letter, setting up Abraham as the paradigmatic figure of faith that's not dependent on Torah, and using Sarah and Hagar in unquestionably allegorical ways to illustrate the ethical possibilities open to the faithful in Galatia and really beyond Galatia. So there are entire graduate seminars to be taught on these allegorical exchanges, but in broad strokes, what kind of Bible reader is Paul? Well, he's an allegorical one, I suppose is the best answer to that, at least in this case. So he says that, um, I was going to say represents, but it's not even represents. He says, uh, Sarah and Isaac are the new covenant under grace and Hagar and Ishmael are uh, the law. And uh, essentially we should, we should spurn the law the way that Abraham spurned Hagar and Ishmael. 
the the central question for me is whether or not this is a sermon illustration or whether he thinks that those categories actually inhere in the Old Testament text. Do you know what I mean? So there's a, there's a big difference between, oh, I'm making this point on grace and the law. Here's an example everybody's going to know. It's not really what it's about, but I'll be able to use it in such a, you know, you, that, that, that would be the sermon illustration. But if he thinks that the law somehow really is involved in Hagar and Ishmael, I just don't see how that could possibly be. I mean, he points out himself in this letter that Abraham predates the law by 420 years. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's curious because this, you know, polyvalent reading that, you know, so many people associate with postmodernism and whatnot is just... Or the Middle Ages. Yeah, is it, just absolutely operative, at least in this letter of Paul, because, I mean, in other places he talks about things happening in a very historical register. Right, which is why I'm inclined to read it as a sermon illustration. I mean, he does do he does this somewhere else. I don't remember where, but he. Well, maybe he doesn't. Am I? Am I way? I, I can't remember if it's him or Saint Augustine who who takes the uh, "Don't muzzle an ox while it's eating." Oh, that's that's Saint that Paul. Can, that's Saint Paul. Yeah, so, so that's another place where where he's he's using this semi-allegorical, but there it really does seem like a sermon illustration, because I mean, I can't imagine anybody thinking that the the primary meaning of the verse about not muzzling an ox is uh, is is about paying apostles. <laughs> you, know you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. And, and like I said, I mean, that's one reason why I like to return to Galatians, just to remind myself that, you know... Paul's an ancient thinker? Well, that Paul's an ancient thinker, and also that he doesn't announce, now I'm going to tell you an allegory. I mean, he just kind of shifts... I mean, just very fluidly between the registers. Right, yeah, he seems like he'd mm-hmm. be comfortable with the Thomist, Dante, and four levels of interpretation. I, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. I don't see anything here that would suggest anything else. Because certain, certainly Paul's not calling into question the historicity of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. I, I just... There, no. No way he's doing that. I mean... I, I like your suggestion that this that this is this is kind of an illustration that he's using. I mean, there does seem to be a principle that's tied to it. Um, in twenty three, his son by the slave woman is born according to the flesh. His son by the free woman is born as the result of the divine promise, and so he's reflecting on Genesis. Um, you know, Ishmael is born by uh, Abraham and Sarah's bright idea to use Hagar as a backup plan, whereas Isaac is the miracle boy. So that's right. that's Genesis. And then he kind of takes that principle of uh that 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 principle of the slave associated with human effort and human achievement and then the son who is the accomplishment of divine promise and divine initiative. And then and then builds the allegory on that principle. Um, I mean that that's I that that makes a, a kind of good sense to me. Right. Well, that's uh, the that's the Hersheyan difference between interpretation and application. Mm-hmm. But but to me, I mean, because it's coming from Edie Hirsch, that's that's a very particularly twentieth century and and reactionary way to think about interpretation and application. I, they, I don't think they really make that distinction in the Middle Ages, and I'm inclined to say that Paul probably also doesn't make that distinction. Right. I mean, you know, one of the things it reminds me of uh, is all of the allegorical tales of the afterlife and of, you know, chariots being pulled by two horses and so on and so forth in Plato's dialogues, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's no real need for there to be... Um, a strong dogmatic belief that, you know, people are naked when they get judged in the afterlife as they talk about at the end of Gorgias, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, he just simply, you know, takes a quick lateral mm-hmm. step into the allegorical. He runs with it. It does its work. And, you know, uh, in my mind, I mean, it's, it's it really the fun thing is the fact that, you know, it takes a trio of 21st century PhDs about 15 minutes to do what St. Paul does in about 12 seconds if you read it out loud. Right. 
Right. I, I mean, it, it, to me, the thing that, 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 that bugs me is the way that the analogy recharacterizes Sinai and the covenant of Sinai, um, which feel that feels weird. But if he's only using this one sort of principle, I don't know, then, then it feels a little less um, dismissive of all that comes uh, that all that comes with with Exodus and the rest of it. Say more about it, David. That's interesting. Well, it, if 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 you say Hagar stands for Mount Sinai and Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children, that's verse twenty-five. If this is Paul's total statement on the reality of Sinai on the giving of the law, on, you know, the revelation of God and fire and thunder, on the significance of Jerusalem, and so forth and so forth and so forth. If this is all that Paul has to say about that, if he's folding, if he's treating this verse as folding all the totality of all those meanings and he's he's commenting on all of it, then I think it becomes a real problem because... um, I, then I don't then I don't see how uh, how you can read this and not just kind of go full Marcionite. Yeah, that makes some good sense. Um, that makes sense. David, remind it, me what Marcionite means. Um, basically dismissed, just ditching the whole Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is probably just an entirely different god. I never feel dumber than when you guys are talking theology. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but but, it, but if he's only talking about it in terms of just that that relationship that law makes between God and lawkeeper and the way that that relationship was presently construed in the Jerusalem that he's talking about um if it's limited to that then i don't you know then then I feel like it it, it, it makes uh, it, it it fits better with also honoring um, the Hebrew scripture. Yeah, and I, I and this this might actually be even a worse place to go, uh, but <laughs> I I also wonder whether the allegory of Hagar and Sarah is a part of the hyperbolic rhetorical character of this book, right? I mean, I think we can say mm. with some reasonable safety that he doesn't actually want the people from Jerusalem to castrate themselves. Right. You know, I mean, is this, you know, one of those moments where in his fervor and in his insistence that people not return to Mm -hmm. a strong separation between Jew and Gentile, that he goes hyperbolic and, you know, says, why do you want to go back to slavery? Don't you realize that Sarah was not the wife of slavery, that Isaac was not the child of slavery? You know, I can imagine sort of a preacherly mm-hmm. cadence to it, maybe. I mean, I like mm-hmm. I said, I, I, yeah. I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking of this on my feet, so it might be even worse than the alternatives, but it occurs to me. Paul has started tweeting in all caps. <laughs> oh, entirely possible. He's gone full Dreyer. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I guess, I guess your point is that he he is in this rhetorical moment and he's using it in this very kind of focused way. And we aren't meant to see this as as exhausting all that Paul could say about Sinai or Jerusalem or the law or even all that he could say about Hagar and Ishmael. Right, right. This is not a systematic theology. This is a rhetorical performance. Which does have implications. Oh, and it, certainly it's, it's got to, implications. Yeah, but 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 it's meant to make this. It's meant to make this one point. It's meant not. It's not meant to say everything. Right. It's not exhaustive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I hate to do this right after we had. I mostly, I mostly just feel bad for Hagar and Ishmael. Talk about adding right. insult to injury. Right. They get abandoned in the desert. Now, well, and it, now three thousand or two thousand years later. Paul's talking about how they belong to the law. They need to be shunned again. <laughs> well, I bet I, I they mean, were like, uh, hey, Paul, what's the law? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the law is given outside of outside of their lineage. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. They're like, don't be a jerk. Man. And there's another sign that he's not being systematic, right? <laughs> right. 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 Because it, and if and and if you go back to 
Genesis, the last note of Genesis on Hagar and Ishmael is of God's kind intervention to preserve both Hagar and her offspring, um, that they might also be inheritors of that Abrahamic promise, literally fulfilled, that he would be the father of many nations. Well, that's okay, because Paul preserves the law at the end of Galatians, so... Yeah, (laughs) right, so... Yay. All right. Well, David, I'm sorry to send all of the controversies <laughs> your way, but I figure our listeners might want to hear us go back and forth on these. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another passage that, honestly, I think that more progressive-leaning Christians overread is Galatians 3.28. All right? The way that I read this, it's an answer to a very specific question that Paul sets up earlier in chapter 3 about the place of Torah in the story of God and God's people. But some people take that one verse as a sort of programmatic political mandate to obliterate distinctions within the assembly. Let me ask you this. I mean, first of all, what is to be commended about that reading? We'll go in the same structure. And then where would you differ from that use of that verse? What is to be commended? Well, it's kind of hard to read the New Testament and in the context of you know ancient Near Eastern culture and other kind of cultural parallels, um, the Hebrew Old Testament as well, but the New Testament's it's it's kind of hard to read it and not observe a consistent um, transgression of the distinctions that had often defined the way people related. Um, you see. Jesus sitting down and talking to people that no uh, no good contemporary countrymen of his would talk to. All right, having having dinner with the guys who collect Roman taxes. <laughs> um, you know, talking to Samaritan women when you know the text says that Jews would have nothing to do with Samaritans. Um, uh, having having women among his followers. And including them in his, uh, within the circle of his rabbinic teaching. Um, I mean, what do you think Mary was listening to when he was at Mary and Martha's house? I mean, Jesus wasn't just sitting there telling them stories about puppies. Um, She's being permitted to take a role um, as as disciple that um, I don't think was the norm for women in that time. and so forth and so on. You, you, I mean, you have Paul in, in Philemon recommending uh, to a master that he accept a slave back as a brother uh, and so forth. So, I mean, there is, uh, there is this New Testament precedent for um, these, these distinctions that have uh, in, in the lived experience of humans led to deleterious effects um, led to uh, the reduction of people to identities um, leading to, uh, th- th- that has dis- dehumanized them, right? Um, you didn't want to be a slave in Rome, right? Or um, much anywhere else, I reckon. Or much anywhere else. But, um, you know, the, the, you could basically be killed at will. Um, you know. Uh, it's, but uh, there were slaves among among the Christians, and Paul says, you know, those of you who have believing slaves, um, recognize this person as also an heir of life. <laughs> um. Anyway, that that that's all good. Is that what Galatians three twenty eight is about? Is your question? Yeah. No, basically. So. The issue in Galatians 3 is who is the heir? Who is... um, uh, Sorry, not Galatians. uh, Sorry, I'm looking at 4. Let me turn back to 3. There we go. Um, The issue in in Galatians 3 is who who is the heir of the promise to Abraham? Um, Who and... The conclusion at the end is that in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, your, uh, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. So, I mean, what the text is interested in is pointing out that none of these distinctions matter to whether or not you can be an heir of the promise. What matters is your identification as in Christ. Um, that you, and the, the metaphor is clothed in Christ. That, you know, you are wearing him. And it is that, that identity gets you in. Um, these other identities are irrelevant to whether or not you are an heir. Um, that isn't necessarily an affirmation that those identities are irrelevant full stop in all contexts and in all ways. Um, is that making sense so far? Yeah, so far so good. I mean, I, do you want to say anything more? Or? <laughs> well, I mean, Paul affirms... Um, I mean, th th there, are, there are ways in which the New Testament says um, these distinctions, uh, it, you know, the, undercuts the use of these distinctions in ways that um, that lead to um, abuse or or misuse of other people. Um, there are ways uh, that 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 that's certainly there, but Paul also affirms um, some of these distinctions. Um, in First Corinthians, he talks about when he is among Jews, he behaves one way so as not to be offensive and when he is with Gentiles he behaves in another way so as not to be offensive um, uh, part of the, the context of that whole um, what do you eat with whom has to do with respect and hospitality um, you know does, does Paul just sort of dive in there and say there's no Jews there's no Gentiles we're all one it doesn't matter and then just offend a whole lot of people um, he doesn't do that um, because in in that time and in that place, in that culture, those things do matter. And being, being kind, being hospitable, living in love means recognizing, um, recognizing those distinctions. Um, and I'll just go ahead and jump in here, David. I mean, if you want to come back, you can feel free. But I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I'll I'll just go ahead and say, I mean, what listeners probably know if they listen to our network that you know. Uh, David is of the camp that often gets identified as complementarian, and I part of the camp that gets identified as egalitarian when it comes to church life. So, you know, yep. I think that women should be ordained preachers. David does not. But I would say, as a person who holds to that, that Galatians 3 is not the text to which I would go to make that point. Uh, I think that right. there are other, other places in Paul. I think there are episodes in the synoptics, some of which David just pointed out. Uh, that mm -hmm. make that case. And, you know, we've done episodes surrounding this question, so we won't belabor that here. Uh, but I think mm -hmm. that it is just kind of squirrely exegesis to take this passage uh, that, it, as David notes, you know, is about uh, inheriting these things that are, you know, foreshadowed in the Torah and turn it into a programmatic political statement. Uh, you know, it's right. not a matter of bad politics so much as bad exegesis to put your eggs in this particular basket? Well, to put it in a way that um, I'm intentionally trying to make progressive skin crawl. <laughs> um, what if I said, uh, well, it's February, but why are we honoring Black History Month? There's no distinction. We're all one in Christ. God is colorblind. <laughs> And then, rightly, um, hackles raise. Why? Um, because the lived experience of historical peoples and people is important. We know it's important because we have lived it. We know it's important historically, and we know it's important biblically. Um, the ways that uh, the ways that Jesus is kind and gentle. Um, to people who are ethnically different from him, um, 
the ways in which Paul is welcoming to people who are ethnically different and yet does not cease to name that difference. Um, even in John's Apocalypse, um, as squirrely as it is to go read the book of Revelation, um, the vision that he casts of of the people of God redeemed by the blood of the Lamb around the throne is a people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Um, the idea is that they are not all they're they're not all in front of the throne as in one indistinguishable mass. Um, that there is some some way of of knowing that that they're all all of their they're all there. Um, the Abrahamic promise of blessing to many nations is fulfilled. Um, but there's still nations, uh, that there's actually a goodness in the distinctions, um, between people that is worth, uh, worth honoring and continuing to celebrate that, um, God is delighted by the variety that has arisen in history, um, in his image bearers. Um, that we can more fully bear the image of God by that diversity. Um, it, I would see it as illegitimate to try to make that go away with Galatians 3.28. And what if the same might be true of men and women? Nathan, are there, uh, are there progressives who use Galatians 3.28 to argue that gender is a spectrum? I have not read that, but I wouldn't be surprised if someday I did. That seems like a parody liberal argument. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I I, I won't say that that argument doesn't exist, only that I've not read it. <laughs> I, I hesitate to label things as parodies anymore. <laughs> it's Pose law. <laughs> <laughs> everyone is doomed to become a parody of themselves on twitter if they stay on there long enough <laughs> this is true enough this is true enough well michael i want to give you a chance to alienate some listeners uh so after insisting on divine initiative in bringing jews and gentiles together and making right what once was wrong paul turns in galatians 5 to one of the most famous virtue lists in the new testament uh, something that reads to me something like a virtue ethics. You know, exhortations to live in the spirit and thus exhibit certain ways of life rather than other ways of life. Uh, so when you read Galatians 2 and Galatians 5 in the same sitting, which by the way, listeners, is not hard to do. You can read through Galatians uh, without your behind getting tired. Uh, how do these two moves relate in your reading, Michael? Well, it is a tension, and, and I, I have been wondering what to do with it. So here's my shot at it, and you guys can correct me from your various directions if you'd like. Uh, I am inclined to say that the Galatians 2 is about justification, in the sense that this is what saves you. Whereas Galatians 5 is about sanctification, in the sense that this is who you are supposed to become. Not just supposed to, required to become. Um, and I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say you could lose your salvation if you don't, but certainly not having those qualities or having the, the qualities in the list of vices instead of the list of virtues doesn't speak well for your salvation. So I, um, I think you're exactly right to call it virtue ethics, because I think, I think that list is about the sort of person you are, you are meant to become. Uh, and the idea that justification is enough that you can kind of stop there i think is foolish although i say that uh getting a little nervous as to what david's going to think about it and by the way listeners <laughs> just in case you're not familiar with galatians chapter five is the site of the famous fruit of the spirit list that's i was hoping michael would say that in his answer but he's assuming like my question did that you already know Sorry, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Did I leave one out? Self-control. No, nah, rock and roll, man. Memory. Huzzah. I, don't, I, don't Huzzah. Have, I don't have that for the spirit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you What do you think? I mean, I, I think I think this is a this is a place where Protestants have historically been a little blind, because because I think I think this this says. 
you read it in conjunction with Galatians 2, it says grace is enough in a certain way, in the sense that you're not saved by your adherence to the law. And yet in some way, Paul does preserve the law, not as a set of rules, but as a set of qualities you're supposed to have. A, 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 a description of the sort of person, the person who walks by the Spirit, is. Hmm. Well, I'll go ahead and tee off on this first. That way David can correct me and have the last word on it. Uh, almost <laughs> as if we're doing Christian humans profiles, right? But um, this is one of the reasons why I tend to read pistis, that noun, as faithfulness more than I tend to read it as faith. Uh, simply because if you read Galatians 5 as the content of that faithfulness, then it makes a little bit more sense and you get rid of some of that tension. Uh, so in other words, the... And again, he's being rhetorically hyperbolic here. So, I mean, if anyone's inclined to write in and say, I know people who aren't believers, who aren't gossips and brawlers and so on and so forth. And I know atheists who have a fair bit of joy and hope and so on and so forth. Again, rhetorical hyperbole. But what he is getting at here uh, is that the life of loyalty or faithfulness to Jesus Christ uh, that is initiated by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ takes on a certain shape uh, that I would call, you know, again, in that sort of virtuous extradition, the shape of true humanity. Uh, so that, you know, the person who has rejected the way of life that constitutes faithfulness uh, has basically, you know, rejected Christ himself. So that there's not a whole lot of, you know, distinction, the way that I think about it, between the psychological reality of I assent to these statements about a an event in history on one hand and then i order my life in certain ways on the other hand uh so you know my own reading is a, a very virtue ethics reading of galatians but that's because again i view the faithfulness of jesus christ as the divine gift and then the faithfulness of the disciples to jesus christ as you know the shape of what St. Paul calls faith when he attributes faith to the disciples of Christ rather than to Christ himself. So, you know, that's that that would be my tendency when I read this. And now I'm going to let David uh, correct me. I don't know that I'm going to correct you. I'm oh, just... come on. <laughs> you heretic. I can't believe that we even give you a platform. There you go. Now you're rocking. <laughs> no. Um... Oh golly, what a couple couple things I'd like to kind of poke at. Um, one is I think the usefulness. Um, I, I see what you're saying about about faithfulness encompassing both um, what's going on. So you you say you keep saying psycholo psychological reality the the thing that I believe to be true and then um, my my action uh, what I choose and what I do in res um, in in, uh, in accord with that um, that that you that you, you you speak of them under this all encompassing term right um, but I do think that there's and and. And that I think makes sense. Um, you know, just to pull in the book of James, um, faith without works is dead. Uh, a, 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 a faith that does a, 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 a belief that is, uh, or that, that is not accompanied by an action is, is no belief at all. Um, in, in, in this particular case, uh, well, I mean, obviously there. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously there are things that we that that we might believe are true that call for no action on our part. The gospel is not one of those things, right? And I and I tend to read that section in James. I didn't really prep it for today, but I tend to read mm -hmm. it as you know, people saying I am faithful to Christ, as in I don't worship other gods, and you know, mm -hmm. the letter of Jacob, as I call it, because that's what the freaking Greek says, uh, you know, saying, <laughs> okay, you want to show me your loyalty to Christ show me what you actually do. Don't tell me that you don't worship idols. Show me what your life looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Whereas I read it in light of uh, James 2.19, where it says that even the demons believe 
and tremble as like that as saying there is a a a belief element here um that that isn't fully collapsible into the um into the faithful thing um anyway i i I think i think that it's useful to to make a distinction in our experience of the belief that comes from hearing the word declared and then the call to response to it um that that experientially those things um are often distinct um and that and that we could continue and that I could continue to use the word faith to mean belief to refer to that side of 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 my experience and then obedience to designate the other um and I think it's useful to be able to designate the two separately um I like the fruit I I, I like the idea of of the metaphor of the fruits of the spirit read within um a larger discourse of vegetable life <laughs> that shows up in the New Testament um, surfacing uh, surfacing first with uh, John the Baptist at uh, is it the beginning of Mark where he says who warned you to come and repent that's Matthew um, yeah. is that, is that yep. Matthew okay um, bearing, you know who, who warned you to come to repent the axe is laid against the root and the trees that don't bear fruit are going to be burned um, bear fruits in accordance with a uh, with repentance. Um, you know, Christ picks up on that same imagery uh, uh, in in multiple ways uh, in in the different discourses of the Gospels. But the idea that fruit is an indication that something is alive, and so the fruit of the Spirit is um, when you see the fruit of the Spirit, you know that's that is actually a live person. Um, it makes me think of. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress. There's a character in Pilgrim's Progress called Talkative. I wonder what he represents. Yeah. Uh, he represents um, introversion. No. Uh, he, 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 introver- he, he represents the person who talks a good game. And in his conversation with Faithful, hey, hey, uh, f- what Faithful calls him out on is the fact that he talks a good game and seems to affirm all the right things but none of it ever actually shows up in the way that he lives. And this is, uh, you know, in a, in a pretty extended passage of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, this a is book held that up. only has extended passages. <laughs> <sighs> this is held up as uh, as as evidence of a of a of a flawed. Um, uh, of a of a false faith, um, you know, merely to affirm these things, merely to talk a good game with the right terms, um, is not is not evidence of 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 real life, and that's the issue. Um, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is a new creation, uh, and the new creation shows itself by fruit. Well, David, uh, I've saddled you with two of the big controversial questions that orbit this epistle, so it's only fair to let you highlight something else in this letter. So talk to our (laughs) listeners about a passage in Galatians that's worth some contemplation, and when you have, pass it to Michael so we can end this episode going around the horn. One of the things I like in the book of Galatians, which is, um, as I understand it, one of the very earliest that we believe of the of, of, of Paul's epistles? Yeah. I read that nobody really knows that it could have okay. been anywhere between 40 and 60. Right. So, I mean, some okay. scholars say that 1 Thessalonians is the first Pauline epistle. Some people say Galatians. Okay. It would make sense if this was early, though, because he's establishing his bona fides. Mm-hmm. Or at least it might be a fairly early interaction with this particular audience. Um, in any event, uh, I, I find it really interesting uh, the degree of development that's in this uh, pretty short epistle um, with connections to other other ideas in Paul. Um, but the, I don't know, I'm probably not even using it right, the metaphysical side of salvation, um, the 
uh, often, you know, my 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 urge as um, a more or less son of Geneva is to talk about um, things like imputation and justification and and status, right? Th those kinds of declarative status things. Um, but uh, Paul talks in chapter 2, verse 20, about the life he lives um, being by the Son of God, um, the idea that there is a life in him that comes from the Son of God. Um, at the end of chapter 3, uh, he talks about how we're sons of God, uh, and at the beginning of 4, he both refers to it as adoption, but also says that we've been given the spirit of the Son that inside us teaches us to call God Father, so that it's not just we're like we're children of God on paper, but there's actually a, a living principle inside of the believer um, that turns them in this direction, and it shows up in chapter 5, um, in what he calls the desires of the spirit, that there's actually something living and at work inside of you, um, giving you the sorts of desires that a son of God has. And how do we know what sorts of desires the son of God has? Well, we saw that faithful son. He lived among us. He died among us. He, he lived again among us. Um, and those same sorts of desires ought to be in you now. And then uh, at the end, uh, he uses that phrase in uh, chapter 6, verse 15. Uh, what doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. What matters is a new creation. Um, it's the same phrase that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, the idea that, that there is something that really is really real and really happens, and it's not just an idea in your head or a series of things that you do, but that both of those sides of belief and act are manifestations of a real living thing that is uh, the person of the Spirit connecting you to the person of the Son and through them to the person of the Father. What do you got, Michael? I'll go real quick because uh, we're already over an hour here. This, this book has a strange view of freedom, in my opinion. Uh, the famous <laughs> verse at the beginning of chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Also, Obviously, we're set free from the law. However, in the modern age, we are accustomed to thinking of freedom as autonomy, and that is not at all the view of freedom in Galatians. Instead, freedom doesn't mean anything if it's not used for love. This is also uh, chapter 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So really you're being released from one bondage into another bondage, which I think is the movement of the entire New Testament, starting with Christ saying his his yoke is, his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Notice you still have a burden, you still have a yoke. It's just a different kind mm -hmm. and more bearable. Sounds good. Uh, we've already touched on the one I want to focus on, and it's just the wonderfully rhetorical character of this epistle. Uh, one thing that sometimes if you don't spend a whole lot of time in the text of the New Testament, you get a sense that it's all kind of a very even-handed, uh, flat collection of texts. You know, I mean, there might be some differences of subject matter, uh, but by and large, you know, the New Testament is one text. Uh, you read Galatians uh, right after you read the book of Acts or, you know, even the uh, book of Hebrews, and you see that, I mean, this is just a man who is going a mile a minute. Uh, there is something urgent that he's got to get out, and the people who have gotten in his way, he is going to stomp on their faces on the way to that prize. Uh, and, you know, of course, I'm not saying he advocates physical violence. This is me being <laughs> allegorical, but uh, there is an urgency and there is a speed to this letter that's just wonderful to read if you take the time to, you know, just sit down, you know, depending on how fast you read, you can probably read this thing in under an hour. Uh, and, you know, I, I encourage that. That's, that's the way that I prefer to take on the Bible. So uh, that does it for St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Uh, David, what do you reckon we might talk about next? Well, 
that's something that I've been mulling over. Uh, we've been looking at a completely legit book of the New Testament. Um, I thought about looking at maybe one of the kind of iffy books of the Old Testament. Um, I'm talking about the Wisdom of Solomon. It's an interesting one. You're talking about the the book that does not appear in the Protestant Bible. I yes, I hesitant am. to call it apocryphal. Yes. Okay, uh, I wasn't sure if you meant that or Proverbs. Because I keep seeing it referenced in my church fathers, and darn it, I want to know what's up with that. Well, that sounds like a plan. That's what we will talk about next. Uh, friends, thank you for downloading uh, Christian Human- Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us at uh, iTunes. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And you can, of course, come to our website at christianhumanist.org. Our web, li- or no, our web liaison, our publisher liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I am Nathan Gilmore on behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.